Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jordan. I'm going to start today with a question, and I actually want an answer. Um, I'm looking for one. So if you're comfortable, when you think of something, just shout it out. Who do you think is a wise person? This could come from your own life, from history, or from fiction, anything. The three wise men, that's a planted answer, thank you. (laughs) Anybody else? Yoda. Yoda, yeah, absolutely. Solomon. Solomon, definitely. God says he's wise. He's wise. Gandalf. I agree entirely. Dumbledore. Yeah, sure. All right. So we have a pretty wide variety of of characters and people. What do they have in common? Mike. They all believe in God. Age, yeah, they're all pretty old. I, I wouldn't say that it's just age, though, because we definitely have experienced some probably foolish old people. Um, it's more about experience, right? Accumulated experience. I'd say there are a couple of other things that all these people, characters and people have in common, too. They seem to know things that other people don't. It's almost mystical at some point for some of them. Um, They have better insight into people's motivations or into the outcomes of the things that they do and the decisions that they make. They have good judgment. And I think an important final point is they act toward the good. You can have someone who is an evil mastermind who can have uh, good, really good insight into what's going to happen. What's going to happen when they do something? They have accumulated experience and all this stuff. But if they don't act toward the good and instead choose evil, we wouldn't call them a wise person. I think that's a pretty good summary of human wisdom. Human wisdom is not a bad thing. It's applied knowledge and insight, often accumulated over a lifetime of learning from others and from personal experience. God's wisdom, which is what we're going to talk about today, is along the same vector, the same direction, but taken to the infinite. A biblical definition, courtesy of John Piper, is this. Divine wisdom is the perfect factual knowledge and the perfect situational insight and the omnipotent resolve that together will succeed in achieving his intended righteous goals. So that's pretty dense, some difficult concepts there, but the gist is this, at all times everywhere, 
God knows everything. God can see exactly what the most important goals are and how to achieve them. And God follows through and achieves his good, righteous goals every single time. Now, all of that sounds phenomenal. I mean, what could be better than an infinitely powerful and knowledgeable God who always does what's necessary to achieve the best goals all the time? The difficulty that most of us come up against at some point in our lives is the problem of pain and suffering. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this. If God were good, he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do as he wished. But the creatures are not happy, and therefore God lacks either goodness or power or both. Now, to be clear, C.S. Lewis does not believe this. This is him stating the problem of pain. So if God is perfectly good, all-knowing, and all-powerful, why do people, especially good and innocent people, suffer? And we see it all the time. I had a professor at seminary who, uh, a wonderful man, I respect him deeply. And he shared a pretty heavy story in his life in class one time. He said that for 10 years, he and his wife were trying to have a child. In that time, they were serving God. They moved to a couple different places in the world, but they always remained with his church and in his denomination to try and help that denomination through some pretty significant difficulties. And, uh, he, at the same time, he got his PhD in the intersection of philosophy and theology. And this is just a, a brilliant man who is living out his calling as a teacher and theologian. His, after about 10 years, his wife became pregnant, but miscarried midterm. And they were never able to get pregnant again. It was absolutely devastating. But at the same time, their faith never wavered. And the reason why is something that we'll come back to a little later. This is an example, a good example, of the problem of pain. This is not a new struggle, and the Bible actually has quite a bit to say on the subject. The book of Job, in particular, is, is written to address this question, and even though it doesn't have a direct answer. So I'm going to walk through Job kind of quickly. The book opens with Job. Uh, being introduced as blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Uh, pretty quickly, the scene changes to God in heaven holding court. And God points to Job on earth as godly and blameless. The Satan, or the Satan, who is apparently an angel taking on the court role of prosecutor, or some people understand it as just Satan in heaven, uh, throwing dirt on people. He speaks up and he says that Job is only obedient to God because he gives him everything that he wants. He has no reason to go any other direction. And over the next while, God actually gives Satan permission to take everything from Job. In a single day, Job finds out that all of his livestock, his entire livelihood, all the wealth he's accumulated over his life is taken away. All of his servants have been killed and all of his children have died, either in 
horrific accidents, or in attacks from neighboring nations. When he finds out, he tears his clothes in grief. And he says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. But Satan's not done. And next he takes Job's health. And he ends up sitting in ashes in what I picture as the ruins of the house where all his kids died. And he's scraping boils that cover his body from head to foot with a piece of broken pottery. But still, even when his wife tells him to, he refuses to curse God and he refuses to just die, give up and die. Next, Job has three of his friends come. They arrive and they're coming from abroad after they heard all this bad news. And for a whole week, they just sit with Job and they don't say anything because they recognize that this grief is just too great to bear. These three friends actually represent the greatest of ancient Near East wisdom. And eventually Job speaks up and uh, they respond. They, and all of them come with a common assumption that's still around today and it's really quite dominant. This is that a good, all-powerful God is just at all times in ways that we can observe, rewarding good and punishing evil. So if something good happens to somebody, they must be innocent, they must be good. If something bad happens to somebody, they must have done some evil. Throughout the dialogue, Job proclaims his innocence over and over. And that's how he begins. He says, I've done nothing wrong. Why is this, this stuff has happened to me? And one of his, his friends says that God is just and Job must have done something wrong. Whether it's something that Job is lying about or something he's forgotten or it doesn't recognize as evil, he has done something wrong. And Job says, no, I'm innocent. And we know that's true because God said it. Now another one of his friends speaks up and says that God is just building character in Job or he's warning him not to sin in the future by giving him these, uh, these trials and this grief to work through. And Job says that I am innocent. I've done no wrong. I planned to do no wrong. I'm innocent. And Job gets frustrated with these friends and he talks directly to God. And his, he his scathing questions push the border of accusing God of failing to act justly, but he still doesn't cross the line all the way into cursing God or actually naming God as unjust or bad. In our time and place, this kind of disillusion with God would probably lead to a diff in a different direction, but, uh, and that's to question whether God even exists. But that's not really something that, that Job brings up. After going back and forth with his friends a few more times, God breaks it off and interrupts one of the speeches from the friends. And God's response is a super long passage. It spans multiple chapters in Job. Um, and he doesn't answer Job's questions directly at all. I want to read some of it, some of God's response, because I, I really feel that a synopsis alone won't do it justice. Here goes. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. 
Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the, mount, as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who kept the sea inside of its boundaries as, its, as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further shall you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. God calls out Job and describes his creation at this cosmic scale and asks Job, is this, is this something you do every day? What do you think? Next, he's going to zoom in all the way into the small things in creation that, God, that he designed and keeps in balance. Do you know when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched as deer are born in the wild? Do you know how many months they carry their young? Are you aware of the time of their delivery? They crouch down to give birth to their young and deliver their offspring. Their young grow up in the open fields and then leave home and never return. The ostrich flaps her wings grandly, but they are no match for the feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on top of the earth, letting them be warmed in the dust. She doesn't worry that a foot might crush them or a wild animal might destroy them. She's harsh toward her young as if they're not her own. She doesn't care if they die. For God deprives her of wisdom. He has given her no understanding. But whenever she jumps up to run, she passes the swiftest horse with its rider. Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it your, at your command that the eagles rise to the heights to make its nests? It lives on the cliffs, making its home on distant rocky crag. From there it hunts its prey, keeping watch with piercing eyes. Its young gulp down blood. Where there's a carcass, there you'll find it. Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Are you God's critic? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. But God's not done. He continues with extended passages describing two majestic, extremely dangerous and possibly mythical creatures that he's proud of having made. And then Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in ashes to show my repentance. 
God's point here with this long answer is that the universe he created and we inhabit is infinitely complex. And there is no way that we as humans can understand it. And there's no, because of that, there's no way we can discern wisdom and justice at the scale that's required to understand God's actions. He shows Job that his perspective is infinite and Job's is woefully small to be making judgments about God's actions. He shows Job that his experience does not show God is unjust, but rather that Job is human and God is God. Job repents of his accusations in anger, and afterwards God says that he was actually right to bring his struggles to God in prayer. Even in harsh words, he was honest. And that Job's friends were wrong about God. In the end, Job once again is given a family and even greater prosperity than he had before. God is infinite in wisdom and power. And when we encounter the problem of pain, as we inevitably will in our lives, we must come to the same conclusion as Job, that we cannot challenge God's wisdom, power, or goodness. We are simply too small and limited to possibly understand. Isaiah records the same thing when he says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We have to keep this perspective and maintain it. We are not God. We cannot understand all of his thoughts or actions, and we are in no position to pass judgment on him. At the same time, while we can struggle with this and kind of wrap our heads around it abstractly or just um, accept it as fact, it's not easy. And importantly, I think, it leaves us in a place when this is all we consider that we're mortal and God is very decidedly other. And that's a big gap. It's difficult for me and I suspect for many of us to understand how can, he can relate to us like that, relate to our suffering. And that makes it hard to trust and love God from the heart. Thankfully, God hasn't left our relationship with him at that. In Jesus, we have Emmanuel, God with us. From Philippians, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And then from Hebrews, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings we do, and yet did not sin. Jesus is God and human. He was born and lived a full human life, including real temptations and acute suffering. He can relate to us, and we can relate to him. He did this for us. So when my professor and his wife lost their only child before birth, they were able to 
simply trust that the world is broken and bad things happen, and yet God is above all. And at the same time, God is with them, was with them in their suffering, having experienced true suffering and continuing to experience their suffering with them. We too can place our trust in God, who is at once infinite, all-powerful, and all-knowing, and yet also fully in touch with the smallness and suffering of our human experience. Now, one of the questions that we've asked consistently in this series is, what would it look like if God did not have the characteristics that he has? So what if God was not wise? Thought of a few implications. It would be possible for us to do something that God didn't anticipate and isn't able to fit into his purpose. We could do something that God is unable to redeem for good. We could end up in a dark place physically, mentally, or spiritually where God could not bring us back to himself even if we repent. On another side, God might only be able to fulfill his grand purposes at the grand scale. And since most of us are just little people, we don't matter and we can fall by the wayside, completely irrelevant. But thankfully, none of those are the case because nothing falls outside God's wisdom. And we are called to live a life reflecting that truth. In the end, from Romans, it says, And we know that all things work together for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know this is the end, because as, in, says in, as Piper said in his definition of wisdom, God's wisdom is complete, and he will always succeed in fulfilling his righteous goals. Our role and privilege is to participate in his good work here on earth. Now let's consider our own lives. Wherever you are in life, you are not outside God's wisdom. Your past is not beyond God's wisdom. Your present situation is not beyond God's wisdom. Your family is not beyond God's wisdom. You are not beyond God's wisdom. Personally, I've never felt like I'm part of some grand purpose. I'm not one of the big characters in history, and I needed to go in a specific direction with my life. I always felt more like what I do and where I end up probably don't matter on the big scale, so the choices that I make don't matter that much, and I kind of like it that way. The things I've suffered in my life have never been too severe compared to what many go through, and so they don't really matter at that scale either. But there's no person whose life is just noise in God's eyes. There is purpose, and even though I'm one of the little guys, I'm not outside God's wisdom. As part of following Jesus, it's our role and my role to participate in God's redemptive purpose wherever we find ourselves. One way to do this is by simply asking God for his wisdom in our decisions that we make in life. I know some people here have, they, they experience real suffering as part of 
everyday life. And many also have pasts that include intense seasons of suffering. These two are not beyond God's wisdom. Our job is not to question God's wisdom and why we were born in this time, in this place, to our family of origin, or even to question the suffering that we go through every day or those intense seasons that we've gone through in the past. As difficult or even impossible as it is to understand from where we are, God allowed all of those things to happen. But Jesus is with us in our suffering, and we can trust that somehow it will not be wasted, but rather redeemed for good. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So let's go forward, trusting in God's wisdom and seeking to participate in his redemptive work within us and all around us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.